Hey, if you like the Music Box series on HBO, did you know the first four films are available on HBO Max right now? Yeah, Woodstock 99, Alanis, DMX, Kenny G. You can find them all on HBO Max. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network, where I hope you're going there for football, for basketball, for movies, for music for TV, for culture, whatever you want. I'm on there with for the uh, Prestige TV pod this week talking about Yellow Jackets, a show that uh, on Showtime that I really like. Coming up on this podcast, our old friend Jimmy Kimmel is joining us. You can see him on Jimmy Kimmel Live, which I think is its 20th year for Jimmy Kimmel Live, ABC, 20th season. I don't know if we've had the 20th anniversary yet, but I think we're in the 20th year. Yeah, congrats to him. Used to work on that show way, 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 way back then. He's the guy who convinced me to move to LA. He's coming up in one second. We're going to talk about Saturday Night Fever. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because our latest Music Box documentary. It's called Mr. Saturday Night. It's directed by John Maggio. It is uh, one of the highest degree of difficulty films I've been involved with because it is archive heavy. I'll just leave it at that. But it is an incredible story about a guy who was way ahead of its time. It premieres on HBO, 8 p.m. Thursday night. You can watch it on HBO Max right away as well on Thursday night. Coming up, you know, I walk on my hair a long time and you hit it. You hit my hair. Saturday Night Fever is next. You know how many times somebody told me I was good in my life? Two, two, twice. This raised today and dance, dance at the disco. His name is Tony Manero. Every guy wants to dance like him. He's very good, huh? He's the best. Hey, man, he's great. Every girl wants to be with him. John Travolta is Tony Manero in Saturday Night Fever. Catch it. Rated R. All right, Jimmy Kimmel is here. We've known each other for 19 years, actually 19 years last month, November. That was when we officially met, even though we'd been talking for a while. Yeah. One of the things that we bonded over was our love for a bizarre movie that became a smash hit called Saturday Night Fever, which came out in 1977. It made John Travolta a super duper star. It turned the Bee Gees into the biggest musical act in the world. It revived the disco movement for two to three years. And it has lived on and on and on. And even though parts of this movie have now been canceled, it is still um, a movie movie experience unlike any movie I've ever seen in my life. Would you, let's start there. Would you agree? It's a classic. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a time capsule. It's like, I mean, it really is like oh, that six-month period in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. <laughs> right. And you think... People think this is like a disco movie. It's they remember like you go on YouTube clip and you watch the Travolta scenes. It's really a movie about these losers who have no path out. Yeah. And the one time their life has any magic at all is when they go to this 2001 Odyssey and they're the kings on the dance floor for a couple hours and that's it. And they this is the one time that they touch greatness 
And then they go back to their shitty lives. Like our lead character, Tony, he's working at a paint store. He's fighting to get a raise from $250 to $3. He's got one suit that he wears. Uh, he lives with his parents who his dad hates him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's got a bunch of moron friends who are just Neanderthals and he kind of knows it. But then he goes to this dance floor and it all comes together for him. That's probably, I think, the most realistic part of the movie is what happens at home because that's, you know, I'm from an Italian family. We grew up five miles from from that, you know, and, and it's typical for the son to stay in the house far longer than he should. <laughs> and right. it's also typical for the mother to dote on the son and then typical for the father to resent it. Right. <laughs> you know? And uh, and you see all that right there at the table. I mean, even the grandma who doesn't say anything really at all. <laughs> I don't think. No, she has no lines. She has no lines at all. She covers her covers her eyes at one point. Yeah, and, and the dad is just at one point. The dad hits Tony, and then <laughs> the mom head. hits him. She hits the mom back. They're all hitting each other at the yeah, table. Yeah, he hits his he hits his wife in the face at the dinner table. And by the way, that's not. I mean. That's that's real, you know. That's not such an unusual thing back then. I, maybe still now. I don't know, but that's the sort of thing that goes on in those tiny little houses in Brooklyn. Yeah, and this is the seventies. There's a lot going on. The key, the key quote for me: He gets mad at his dad a little later in the movie, and he says, "And his dad like shits on the fact that he got a raise, right? He's like, yeah, he got a raise, four dollars a week." Yeah. yeah, he's like, oh, great, oh, great, congratulations. And he's like, hey, you know how many times someone told me I was good in my life? Two. Two twice, two fucking times. This raised today in dancing, dancing at the disco. And that's kind of the movie in a nutshell. This is a guy who's probably headed nowhere. Even the girl at Stephanie when he has coffee with him and she's sizing him up and she thinks she's hot shit. But she's not either. No. And she's just like, Yeah, you you your life, you just what do you do? You you make money, then you blow it on the weekends at the disco. And he's like, Yeah, that's what I do. He's like happy about it. That's the most interesting part of the movie to me, uh, is that Stephanie is kind of a loser too. I mean, she's really basically like living with a guy who's paying her bills and keeping her afloat. And she obviously doesn't love him, but and she's also not that bright. And I'm going to add another thing, not a great dancer. That's one of the funniest parts of it. He sees her and he's like, oh, she's got to be my partner. We could win this contest. And then you see her in like first in the ballet studio where she's not doing any ballet at all. Right. She's not really physically fit. She is just not a particularly, she's no better than the, than the other girl that, that he rejected. I mean, she, right. In a way, at least she had the other girl had some enthusiasm. She had just nothing, kind of. It's almost as if the producers were like, "Oh my God, we got Travolta for this." Uh, okay, who are we going to get to be his love interest? It doesn't matter. Whoever, it just be, you see that girl over there, she's the love interest. I mean, that's what it feels like. And she's way older than him. I think she was like thirty-two. Her name's Karen Lincorny. She's ten years older than him. Yeah, in, incredible in IMDb makes this movie, which is. A massive hit, which we'll talk about in a second. Does not have another IMDb credit for 14 years. <laughs> well, parlays this into nothing. She was on All My Children, right? Before, yeah, before that. And then I think she tried to go back, but they fired her, which is. Yeah, it's, it's rough. It's, imagine that being in one of the biggest movies of all time. And then you, and then you can't get back on All My Children, which is like, you know, we're actors go to die. Right. Well, we're almost the same age. So you think like 75, 76, 77, 78, 
we have 75, we have Jaws, yeah, which creates the summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. 76, we have Rocky, which basically modernizes the sports movie. 77, we have Star Wars and Saturday Night Fever, which for different reasons kind of create at least a piece of pop culture. Like this is where things are now headed. And Annie Hall too, I would add. And Annie Hall, yeah. It was a loaded yep. movie year. And then 78 is when we have Grease and just that oh, like yeah. mo- modern movies are kind of evolving, but we're around the same age. You're, you're like a year older than me. My, uh, my relationship with this movie is I'd always heard of it. I knew the soundtrack because my parents had it. Does it's like probably still the best soundtrack of all time. I don't even think probably, it's an argument. Yeah. Probably is. Um, pretty yeah, the best original soundtrack I think yeah. of all time. It's not even a question. So it comes out. Not allowed to see it. I'm sure you weren't allowed to see it either. And then I wasn't, but I did. Oh, you did? You yeah. What'd you do? Cleto, sneak into the theater? First oh, Cleto. I should have known. Cleto, my best friend, who's my band leader now. We had that hair. You know, we yeah. we love John Travolta. We. You know, we had, he had one of those stereo systems in his bedroom that had colored lights that would, you know, those really <laughs> primary colored lights that would light up along with the music. And we thought it was really cool. And we would listen to that album a lot, you know, more than But a you woman. didn't see the movie when you were a kid, little kid. Yeah, because I'll tell you something. And this is one of the crazy things about growing up in Las Vegas. Yeah. Is because I just moved to Las Vegas and Sammy Davis Jr., gave Cleto's dad a beta, not just a Betamax, but also a projection television. One of those big wow. ones, you know? Yeah. And um, and so we would get these movies that, you know, Sammy would come into town and he would leave the movies behind. He'd give them to Cleto's dad. And then we'd watch all this stuff. And that was Jesus. one of Jesus. And we well, loved that movie. My experience was my dad went to high school in New Jersey and he has six brothers and sisters. So they were all still in New Jersey and I used to go visit them and they re-released this movie as a PG movie in 1979. Do you remember this? And it was heavily edited. They cut out a bunch of stuff. Yeah. He would say, instead of you want to be a nice girl, you want to be a cunt. It was uh, (laughs) you want to be a nice girl. You want to be a pig. (laughs) Right. Heavily dubbed in in. (laughs) scenes, just cut out, chop missing. But they were trying to capitalize on basically the under 15 audience to go see it. But so that's how I saw it. And it was, I didn't get it. I didn't understand what the movie was. And then, you know, this is why we call it the rewatchables. Once the 80s and the, the cable channels start and this is on, and this is the definition of a rewatchable. It's like, oh, wait, we're about to go to the disco. I'm going to stick around for five more minutes. I want to see one of the disco scenes. And that's I it. I would say, though, that if you're going to rewatch this movie, you could watch the first third of it, and that's good. You're good, pretty good. I mean, unless you want to be amazed by some of the stuff that got into mainstream movies. Oh my! Especially the last twenty minutes. I mean, it, it's it's <laughs> shocking. Like honestly, shocking. What's shocking is that it wasn't shocking. It, what's shocking is that like our parents or whoever didn't go like, hey, uh, by the way, that what that movies that you know <laughs> that stuff that happened in there was bad. Was really really bad. Well, so I was thinking about this because, you know, this isn't, this movie, I think at least this is what movies tried to accomplish in the seventies and eighties. They're trying to capture whatever's going on with the city, a town, a group of people like, you know, Mean Streets, Scorsese does that. Mean Streets, those guys aren't great either, you know, and, and he takes us into this world and it's not like it's the most awesome group of people. And I think one of the things that's so 
polarizing about this movie as you watch it is these guys are awful, but you're kind of rooting for them. Like that, yeah. that weird dynamic comes in, right? And it's because the the dance scenes and just Travolta's charisma, you almost like start ignoring all the terrible th- things he says and does. You know, that's what I wonder about because, like, I know for the Sopranos, for instance, you know that. David Chase knows that these are bad guys and we yep. probably shouldn't be rooting for them. And of course, there's shades of gray and everything, but, they, but he knows that they're bad guys. I wonder if the producers of this movie knew they were bad guys. I My guess is no, they did not. That they, this this character, these characters are like, well, that's just how they are. I mean, if sport, I don't want to give away the ending, but... Uh, no, you, we can give away, we do spoilers. I mean, at the this. ending, <laughs> at the end... He tries to rape Stephanie, his love interest, throughout the movie. He's angry with her, and he expresses that anger by trying to force himself on her in the car. And she kicks him and um, gets away. And it's not like a like he wasn't really trying kick him. It was like he was yeah, like she was defending herself. Yeah, and then not uh, and then he walks around the street all night, and he he stops by the the house in the morning, the apartment, and she she says let's be friends and she kind of cradles him in in her arms but even before that before she lets him in she's like i don't know if i want to let in yeah she's like you know i don't think i should let you in are you gonna are you gonna he's like no i promise i won't rape you you know it's like it's unbelievable but she's like okay i'll let you in but here's here's the thing and this is why i think some of this stuff you know, I think it's important, like a movie like this. This comes out in 1977. This was not a discussion. Like you read the the pieces that Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert and all the critics who wrote about this movie, they're like, this movie captures this yeah. underclass in Brooklyn of this these Neanderthals who, you know, they kind of looked at it for what it was. I don't think this movie could be made even close to the way it's made now because I think people no, you'd have would to rightly go, wait a second. As villains. Yeah. yeah, it's not one of those like kind of things where like people are going crazy and you know like the the, the outrage is earned from this film. <laughs> yeah, They're, what goes on? It's also it's so interesting how the women who are sexually assaulted in the movie just immediately kind of forget it and forgive. <laughs> it's like all right, right. Let's move Two scenes it. later, three minutes have elapsed. It's time to forget and go on. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um. Travolta. Yeah. So my experience with Travolta. Yeah. Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Uh-huh. TV movie, which I know you probably saw. Of course. Are you kidding? He's in a bubble. For the people listening, he had some rare immune disease. That's right. He's in a bubble, and he falls in love with somebody who just comes to visit him. And she comes, and they have this, like, it's almost like an internet relationship, because they yeah. can't touch. Or uh, in, like a prison relationship. A, yeah. They're, yeah, he's in a bubble. And then... At the end, he loves this girl so much, he decides, I'm going to leave the bubble. And he leaves. And you can watch it on YouTube. It's really funny. It's actually like that comedy. <laughs> he leaves and he's like, oh, and there's trees. And he hugs her. And, you know, you think like, oh, this guy's going to die in two minutes. But the movie doesn't do it that way. It's, it kind of leaves it ambiguous. But the movie kind of made him, not a star, but it turned him into a little bit of a thing. And then he gets Welcome Back, Cotter, a show that yeah. we loved. Also set in Brooklyn, yeah. allegedly, even though that it's filmed was, in um, L.A. Yeah, that, that that was really where I mean I think I saw 
the boy in the plastic bubble after Welcome Back. Carter. Yeah, man, I don't remember the sequencing. Yeah, it was the two together. And um, yeah, but everybody wanted to be Vinnie Barbarino. Like in my, you know, we would play the sweat. We'd be the sweat hogs, and like you know, nobody wanted to be anyone other than Vinnie Barbarino. You didn't certainly didn't want to be Horshack, but there was always a Horshack. Somebody had to be Horshack. <laughs> it was a show that was watched by twenty to twenty five million people every week. It would be the biggest show now. Three times, and it wasn't even one of the five biggest shows back then. But when's that's, the last time everyone you, watched it. When's the last time you watched that one? Pretty recently. Yeah. I watched a couple episodes, and I got to say, he fucking kills Barbarino. Still funny. <laughs> He's good. <laughs> Horshack, a little annoying. Gabe Kaplan still has the the comedy. But uh, we one of the things Freddy we originally Boom bought Boom it on. Yeah, Freddie Boom Boom Washington. But Travolta is such a big star. Yeah, you can see it right there. Do you remember when he left and they replaced him with like some guy, some like handsome guy? <laughs> yeah, the blonde guy. Yeah, the blonde guy. It's always a blonde guy after as in the second incarnation. I'm trying to. I think his name was Bo. You're right. It was Bo. His name was Bo. It was the first time I remember being being even as a little kid being like, "Oh fuck this! What are you guys doing? Where's Kim Barbarino? What is happening? Who is Bo?" But that show was massive. So, you know, one of one of the things our documentary is about, about because we did the thing about Robert Stigwood, which is part of the Music Box series. He spots Travolta. And back in the day, it was like, if you're a TV star, you're a TV star. It was very hard. Like our guy, Henry Winkler, took him years as the number one show, Happy Days, just to get one-on-one. Yeah. Uh, not one-on-one. Uh, what's, the, what's the wrestling movie you love? Oh, the one and only. One yeah. and only. Yeah, I'm, I'm mixing up with Robbie Benson's one-on-one. He was also in in Hollywood, in um, the Knights of uh, F- Lords of Flatbush. Right, Henry. right. So. But it was kind of you're in TV, you're in TV. And if you try to make movies, it ends up going like how it went for Farrah Fawcett, where you make like that Saturn movie and it just doesn't work. Movie stars and movie stars, they're over here, TV stars. Stigwood's like, that guy's a movie star, signs him to a three-film deal. At the same time, he is buying the rights to this 1976 issue of New York Magazine, uh, this article written by Nick Cohn, who writes a thing called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And it's about this disco scene, which at the at the time is kind of dying, but in Brooklyn is still going. And he's like, I'm buying this. I'm going to put Travolta in it. And just sees like this whole chessboard. And then the final piece is the Bee Gees. And he takes all of these things and puts them all together and single-handedly creates this IP machine that lives on and on. But the Travolta piece, you know, it felt like he was the biggest star in the world after Greece. It I, when it was this movie and Greece, it felt yeah. like there was nobody bigger than him, right? And then Urban Cowboy also was oh yeah, a big one too. Yeah, and he blo- was a- and he did Blowout. Blowout I loved. Yeah, that didn't do as well financially, but uh he was just the guy. He's probably the biggest star of my childhood, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I was wondering I was trying to figure out if Burt Reynolds was a bigger star than him because Burt Reynolds also felt huge. But here's the case I would make for Travolta. Better movies. Well, there's that, but also he was a a television star. He was a movie star and a recording artist as well. Right. And also, I'm not that there's really a category for it, but as you see in the movie, a pretty great dancer. It is funny too in the movie. Like he's, you don't really, his dancing is kind of a lot of memorized moves until that we hit that scene 
where he's oh alone on the dance floor where he there, he's dancing with this woman and and uh, which I think Fran Drescher maybe was the woman he was dancing he did 100% with. Hundred percent right. And he casts her aside, and he's like, uh, "He's going to dance on his own." And then he starts doing crazy stuff that you go like, "Why didn't he do any of this stuff earlier?" And right. why didn't he do it in the dance competition either? Because <laughs> the dance competition is, you know, the the arc of the movie as far as like kind of the dance and winning goes is like. He's a really good dancer. He's the best dancer in the club. He finds this partner who he thinks is going to be great and really take him to a, another level. They're going to win that $500, which is apparently a huge amount of money. And then they um, their dancing isn't very good. And there's a, a, a Puerto, Rican, Puerto couple Rican couple and a black couple who are both better than they are. Yeah. And um, they win because of racism and and in a totally unbelievable scene, Tony Monero takes his check and hands it to the Puerto Rican couple and the trophy too. And which, and yells at his friends. And My own fucking his, friends can't even be honest with yells me. Yells at his friends for uh, supporting him. Yeah. And not only that, one thing that bothered me about that where he hands the Puerto Rican couple, they came in second place. They got a check of some undetermined amount. But so they got a double dip. Shouldn't he have swapped the checks? Like, okay, I'll take the second place. I mean, this is a guy who was excited about a $4 a week, a week raise. It's a great know? point. I had that in picking nets. Yeah, it seems like they would have maybe, like he would have taken that second place check. But no, his in that one moment, his, he has his, his ethics are, are so strong. His backbone is so firm that he has to do the right thing. And then the rest of the movie, he's doing the wrong thing almost all the time. Yeah, he does the right thing there, and a minute later is trying to commit a sexual assault. So you're like, oh, maybe he didn't learn a lesson. On the woman he loves. <laughs> um, see, that's what makes me wonder if the movie is way more self-aware about this, though. Remember you were asking, like, does this movie know if the characters were bad people? Yeah. Like, the contest is rigged. It's totally racist. All the people watching it are racist. Like, they're mean to the Puerto Rican couple. Yeah. They're dismissive of the black couple. And then the contest is rigged so Tony can win, even though he's the third best dancer. So it's I I do think it was aware of the dynamics. And I think, you know, the key character is Donna Pescow, who would go on to star in Angie with Robert Hayes, which I know right. you watched. Yeah. Um, her character, uh, her name was Annette, where she just loves Tony and she's willing to completely torpedo her life just to get any sort of attention from him. But she's the most sympathetic character in the movie, and you're why. And I think I think she does an amazing job as an actress with that. She does part. I, funny, I remember thinking she was annoying, which I guess was the point of her role when I originally saw the movie. But when yeah. I watched it over the weekend, I was like, oh yeah, she was, she was good. It was she was well she was cast, good. and it was believable how much she loved him, and and just kind of how how sad she was and how lonely she was. Yeah. She didn't get nominated. Um, Travolta, he researched the part. He kept going to the disco and wearing disguises because he was famous at that point. Right. Anywhere he went out, he was like a household name. Uh, learned all the dance sequences. Re rehearsed the choreography for three hours a day. Lost 20 pounds. That's about as thin as Travolta probably ever was. And, uh, and became a huge superstar. Nominated for Best Actor. And he should have been. He was really good in that I'll movie. give you the categories. You tell me who should have won. Oh, Okay. Woody Allen and Annie Hall. No. Well, yeah. Okay. 
Richard Burton in Equus. I think it's called Equus. Equus. I saw that. Yes, that was a very. It was a play. Um, I never think it's fair when you um, adapt a play uh, to a movie because uh, that actor has been has probably right, done he's it. Been doing like it for ten three hundred times. Yeah. Marcella Mastriani for a special day. No recollection of that movie. <laughs> Travolta for Saturday Night Fever, and then our winner, Richard Dreyfus in The Goodbye Girl. You know, it's weird. You mentioned that's a that do over. I'm doing that about, one over. Give that to Travolta. I was thinking about The Goodbye Girl, and I was thinking like, this is it's so strange. I was thinking. I think I was thinking about it because I I heard the song on on Yacht Rock or something, <laughs> the Stephen Bishop song. Uh, yeah, Goodbye Girl, and. I was thinking about the fact that it was a movie for adults. It was a very adult, romantic adult movie starring two pretty unattractive people and how that just would never happen now, you know? Right. You're right. It just wouldn't happen. And I remember it being good, but I also remember it being light. And I can't imagine, by the way, Woody Allen should have won, should have won that, that category. I mean, come on, Annie Hall. You look back at, at all of those movies and- which Do you think Woody, Woody Allen should have won Best Actor, though? I, w- I would have gone Travolta over well, you. Lo- I you, don't know. You, I mean, it, it's... You love Woody, I, though. Listen, I love Travolta also, but I, I just think... I don't know. I think comedians in general are, are um, for whatever reason, you're, you're at a disadvantage. And I don't think that should be the case because... Woody Allen is great in that movie. I mean, the scene with the lobster and the, I mean, show me a better scene than that, than him, uh, him being terrorized by a lobster that he's trying to put into a pot. I mean, that's just well, great physical comedy. I'll give you a bigger snubbing. Here are nominees for best original song in the 1978 Oscars. Oh, this the winner was fucked up this category. Yeah. The winner was You Light Up My Life <laughs> by Debbie Boone. <laughs> Candle on the Water from Pete's Dragon. Nobody does it better from The Spy Who Loved Me. Carly Simon, yeah. The Slipper and the Rose Waltz from The Story of Cinderella. And Someone's Waiting for You from The Rescuers. Guess who's not in there? Any of the Bee Gees songs that are still being wow. played 45 years later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. They won four Grammys. So that was a bonus. Their soundtrack album sold over 20 million copies was the top-selling album in history for six years until Thriller showed up. It is still the biggest soundtrack of all time until The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston popped it out like 16 years later. Um, no Oscars, though. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's that's always a weird category, though, the yeah, best original song. They always fuck that up. And 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 You Light Up My Life, I think, was the the number one song, at least of the year, if not all of the 70s. I that think. was a big song. Yeah, I, I can't. But, but it, it also it's, is a song you could, like, if you were eight years old, you could play it on the organ. Yeah, you know? True. <laughs> <laughs> the budget of this movie, what do you think it was? Uh, I don't know, but I want to add one more You Light Up My Life thing because I had the single to You Light Up My Life. And the <laughs> on the flip side of the single is a song called Hasta Manana Till We Meet Again by by Debbie Boone. Oh my God. <laughs> they probably would have taken the Oscar away if they'd flipped <laughs> they that flipped record that over and listened to the other side. What do you think the budget was? God, I, I can't even imagine what it grossed because that I'm gonna give you that too. Oh, okay. I'm gonna guess the budget was six million dollars. Hmm. Three and a half. Oh, okay. It made $237.5 million. <laughs> wow. Really? Is that adjusted or is that what it made? That's what it made. Holy shit. In, in, the, in the run. 
Don't you think it's dumb that they do it like that? Shouldn't they just tell you how many tickets were sold? Yes. In the same way they do, like, imagine if records were were treated like that, where they said, like, uh, oh, yeah, we sold, you know, $80 million worth of records. It's like, it doesn't matter how many records did you sell, because records cost more now. You know who listens to you on that? Ted Sarandos. Oh. oh. Well, he's just like, yeah, our 98 million people watched whatever movie they have. Um, the soundtrack, which sold 20 million copies, Stigwood, I don't want to step on the documentary, but in the documentary, he's trying to get, um, he's trying, they want to put it on more screens and it's Paramount, it's Michael Eisner. And Stigwood's like, that's cool, but I want an even bigger cut of the soundtrack because he knows the soundtrack's going to be knew. big. He makes so much money from the soundtrack that you'll see in the documentary. Like in the end, he's just on his own yacht, just just yachting around. I mean, he probably made like half a billion dollars from this movie, which he deserved because he put it all together. Roger Ebert, three and a half stars. He said the movie's musical and dancing sequences are dazzling. And then he says it reminds him of New York's Little Italy as Martin Scorsese saw it and Who's That Knocking on My Door in Mean Streets. The characters are similar. They have few aims or ambitions, little hope of breaking out to the larger world of success, a world symbolized for them by Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge reaching out powerfully toward it. Yeah. He loved this movie, but you know who loved it more? It was Siskel. Siskel bought the fucking suit. That's right. Siskel owned the suit. Siskel owned the suit. I Siskel, wonder if he ever this- wore that thing. There's no way he was able to fit that <laughs> suit. I mean, Well, Siskel, he bought it in 1979 at a, char- at a charity auction for $2,000. Oh, wow. It's his favorite movie of all time. He said he saw Saturday Fever more than any movie that's ever come out. And then he sold it in 1995 for $145,000 to an anonymous bidder at Christie's. And that guy still owns it? And that guy still owns it. So there you go. that's a pretty good piece of memorabilia. All right. Today's most rewatchable scene is presented by Grey Goose Vodka. There are many ways to enjoy a martini, but only one Grey Goose Vodka. Grey Goose. Truly a product of remarkable imagination made with France's finest wheat and naturally limestone filtered water distilled only once to honor its original flavors and aromas because they're that exquisite. Speaking of the perfect martini, let's get into the perfect scene. The opening credits are amazing. The opening credits have been parodied a zillion times because it is indelible. It's something that I said to my wife, I said, have you ever seen this movie at the beginning? And she said, yeah, I've seen it. I said, I bet you've seen the first minute of it, and that's it. Right. And, uh, you know, it's funny because he's walking around the streets carrying that can of paint. Um, he stops for pizza. He looks great. <laughs> he stops for not one, but two slices of pizza, which he <laughs> stacks he on top of each other. <laughs> and then eats two slices at once, which is, I mean, that's a busy man. <laughs> you know? And he hits, on, he hits on somebody who he walks by. Don't forget that part. He hits As on he's two women. With pizza two on his women. face. Yeah. One of them, one of the women, he actually blocks her from walking. He, he, like, he will not let her get past him. Right. And we see it from his point of view. It's actually a really great shot. And then yeah. the music just like. I mean, Staying I alive. You could set almost anything to that music and it would be a great scene. It's such a, it's just so good. I also think with Travolta, this really is a one-of-one unicorn performance. Like, you can't put anyone from the last 50 years in this movie. I can't think of one actor who could even pull off the opening credits just the way he's... He's kind of like walking on air as he's walking and he's got, it's almost like he's dancing, like he's got an iPod on, like in his ears or something. 
but he's not. He's just he's just kind of walking, but he's I'm moves thinking a certain a, way. A young Mario Lopez, but other than that, I can't think <laughs> of anyone. Yeah, no, he's. I mean, yeah. Who I I think you there's think, nobody. Yeah, there's nobody of that era for sure. You wonder if like maybe Al Pacino as a very young man could, have, but he's not even that. Yeah, I don't. That's not the height so great looking in this movie it's yeah like, yes it's like it's crazy you have to imagine i was imagining like how crazy the women in the theater were going from seeing him and then you know what's i think the closest thing to it from like the current era is magic mike oh interesting you know in that like there was a star that nobody really knew who came kind of out of nowhere channing tatum and then his dancing and his appearance and just the whole thing just like pushed a button that made a lot of women very, very crazy, my wife included. Mm. Well, you, I mean, Travolta has driven you crazy. You guys oh, have yes. known each other forever. He loves you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have to say, <laughs> I sometimes think about the fact that I've met John Travolta and I've like had conversations with him. And it's one of the things that is hard to wrap my head around because- right. He's one of the first guys besides baseball players that I really remember. Um, As know, an important person. Idolizing or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was like, it was Vinny Barbarino, Fonzie, um, you know. <laughs> Who you also know. The, uh, Lou Ferrigno in the Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Know? And that was kind of, other than like Tom Seaver and uh, a few other baseball players, that was it really. That was like. You couldn't even imagine that they were real people. Fred Sanford. Oh, Fred Sanford. Oh, yes. Did you beat, did you have your show when Red Fox was alive or no? I didn't know. He had been long dead, but I did uh, speak to him on the phone once when I was on the radio in Seattle, Washington. It was uh, 1989 or 90, and yeah. Red was having trouble with the IRS, and we decided we were going to hold a uh, a fundraiser, a telethon fundraiser uh, for Red Fox uh, mm. with an appearance by Red Fox. And we had we called the hotel where he was doing shows. I forget which hotel it was, but we called Every single day at the end of our radio show. So at 940, every day we called this hotel in Vegas and asked for Red Fox. And every day we talked to the same woman. She became almost a character on the show. Something like 60 shows in a row. We called and called and called. And then one day she's like, yeah, hold on. I'm going to put him through. <laughs> oh, my God. put him through the Red Fox. And we couldn't believe it. We were just losing our minds that we had Red Fox on the phone. And he didn't know what the fuck we were talking about or why we were calling or whatever. But if there was money involved, he was interested. Yeah. We said, listen, we're going to set this up. We had a theater we were going to do it at. And, um, and we were so ready to go. And I went to the program director and general manager who were kind of amazed that we finally got him on the telephone. And we're like, we got to do this Red Fox's fundraiser for himself to pay off his IRS debts. This is going to be great. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 we're not. We're not going to, oh, no. we're not subsidizing that. And I, and I remember distinctly um, what my imbecile program director said to me. We were working at a classic rock station and he goes, you know, maybe if it was like the Beatles or something, we'd do it. <laughs> Oh my God! Maybe it's the fucking beat. What the fuck are you talking of course. about? <laughs> yeah, Maybe of course, it was the Beatles. <laughs> Jesus. So that never happened. I never got to meet Red, thanks to Larry Sharp. More rewatchable scenes. 
the first dance club sequence where they yep. show up, Disco Inferno's playing, Annette grabs Tony to go on the dance floor. We get a Denny Dillon. Remember her from Saturday Night Live? We get a yeah. Denny Dillon cameo. I love to watch you dance. Yeah. I love it. I love to watch you dance. I just just love it. Watching you dance. She was funny in that. Yes. We have somebody else kiss him. I just kissed Al Pacino. And then they all dance and it's a night fever group dance scene. Which I don't know how everybody knew how to do all the same points and People turns. Practiced. But it was yeah. that was a thing. I remember going to a dance in in the seventies, and my cousin Anne had to teach me how to do the hustle before it. Oh. You had to know those dances. You had to know those moves. Of course, I never actually danced. I wound up standing in the corner watching everyone else dance. But I did learn to do the hustle specifically for a dance. Another scene that I think is very rewatchable is when he that's related to that that scene is when he is in his underwear and he pops out of his bedroom and the attic is his grandmother (laughs) al pacino attica attica (laughs) (laughs) it's a funny very real moment al pacino al pacino attica attica it's also the that whole section is the most rooted in 1977 because all the posters which we'll cover in a second yeah he's doing al pacino attica attica which has like a four-year shelf life of an al pacino performance uh next rewatchable scene the first coffee scene with him and stephanie would you like to know what i do it's not necessary i'll tell you what i do work in a paint store and i got raised this week Right. You work mm. in a paint store, right? Yeah. You probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go and you blow it all off 2001, right? That's right. You're a cliche. You're nowhere. On your way to no place. What do you got, a fucking stairway to the stars or what? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm taking a course night to the new school. Next semester I'm going to take two. Now you, you probably- yeah. It's really well written and well acted and kind of perfect but they have that one part when she's telling about Lawrence Olivier Sir Lawrence Olivier the one on television who does all the Polaroid commercials and he's like oh yeah him he's He's good good. he's good it's like Uncle Frank he's good (laughs) and then she tells him you're a cliche you're nowhere you're on your way to no place and he's kind of looking at her like yeah but still he doesn't really have a comeback but that's like a really well written scene i think this is the secret to this movie is there's some scenes like that where you're like oh this these are real characters there's some really good stuff i mean when they're yeah. sitting around the the dinner table or the stuff that seems very loose and very realistic yeah. he he hits him in the head and he's like he hits him and he goes and he's upset with his father he's like you know uh, my hair, I work a long time on my hair, and you, you, you hit it. <laughs> you hit it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably 12, 13, 14 really distinct characters, which are really hard to pull off in a movie that's less than two hours. But yeah. Um, next one, Father Frank goes to the disco. Father Frank Jr. It's, it's, uh, you know, my friend Cleto and I called our penises Father Frank Jr. <laughs> for reasons still I can't remember why. Um, for like 10 years, like uh, that was how we referred to our oh penis, Father Frank Jr. Well, this has the Fran Drescher cameo. Are you as good in bed as you're on the dance floor? And then they start dancing and he just starts ragging on her. 
You know Connie? Yeah. If you're as good in bed as you're on the dance floor, I bet you wouldn't allow us to fuck. <laughs> so how come they always send me flowers the next day, huh? You know, some guys don't know a lousy fuck when they got one, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah? Maybe they thought she was dead. And how great looking is Fran Drescher in that? She looks unbelievable. Like, what are you doing with with Stephanie? Fran Drescher right. is a She's knockout. right there. Oh, my God. She's the best looking girl in that club. Um, they do the You Should Be Dancing. And Travolta takes over the dance floor. Oh, forget this. He just pushes Fran to the side. Give the kids some right. room. He's taking over again. And has a two-minute heat check. So... We talk about this in the documentary, but I didn't know this until we were doing the doc, but Travolta, like he really trained for this scene. This was like his fight scene. If this was a boxing movie. I would movie. think so. I mean, he's dropping to his knees and popping back yeah, up. Yeah, so he's all doing crazy stuff. So the director does it and it has all these close-ups and close-ups of his feet and, quite, and you don't get that wide shot. Oh. And Travolta threatens to quit and he calls Stigwood and he's like, I'm quitting the film unless you go wide and you kind of let me cook. So the way, and that at that sense. point they have the steady cam and they're able to just go wide and they film it almost like a, a sports movie where they just kind of let him do his thing for two minutes and it's fucking mesmerizing. It could go for 10 minutes. I would have watched it. Oh, I mean, who, what kind of an imbecile shoots, shoots dancing in close up? I mean, it's like, just, yeah. you, even you watch any, I mean, you watch soul train and you know, you right. gotta see the people dance. My favorite is they cut to the hot blonde at one point, and she's like, "All right." Yeah, the one city. Of the Every night. '80s movie had that that edit point girl. <laughs> well, spoiler alert: this is going to win the category for me. But I actually think this is one of the like the five most iconic scenes of the '70s. Like, I'm sure we could pull the ending of Chinatown. You could pull maybe one or two things from Godfather One, Godfather Two, whatever. But if you're just starting going backwards, it's like, what are the most memorable scenes of the '70s? This has to be in the conversation in the first first wave of whatever movies you're talking about. This is everybody knows what that scene is. It's lived on for 45 years. Which scene? Case. This this scene. The, oh, the, okay. I think you're leading up to no, something. Travolta, oh, yeah, no, Travolta Travolta taking yeah. over the dance floor. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. It's it, it it's impressive. He's he's really it's really good. Really, it's good really when good. Cruz will do this too when Cruz really gets in, like he does it in the color of money when he he runs the table in nine ball and he's singing werewolves of London. And, but he like really has trained in billiards. So he's actually good at it. And you're like, Oh, this is impressive. Uh, two more scenes. The first Brooklyn bridge scene <laughs> when they all jump off yeah. and pretend, and then they weren't, but that, you know, when you read about how they filmed this, like those guys were actually up there. There wasn't a lot of safety precautions. Is that right? In the mid seventies. Yeah. The cameraman's shooting over the side. He's got like the key grip holding his waist as oh he's like God. leaning over. They're 600 feet above uh, the water, basically. But, And then uh, the dance contest, which I enjoy more because it makes me mad. It makes me mad that their final dance scene wasn't better. I love yeah. watching Caesar and Maria, the Puerto Ricans, killing it. And then how mad he gets at his own friends. Like, it's, it's a bizarre scene, but I enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it. I thought it should have been... I thought it should have been better. I think it, they should have... Their dancing should have been better. Stephanie and Tony, and then the other people should have been better too. You know, they could have found somebody better, but it was weird to have, they were just kind of doing those like spins and it, it was just a, an underwhelming compared to like that scene in the middle of the movie where he takes right. over the dance floor by himself. It's totally underwhelming. And it also like, 
you know, sometimes things are too formulaic and you go, ah, that's too formulaic. Sometimes you want a little formula in there and a little formula would have been, you know, it, it, I, maybe then there's another dance contest after that, that they win or, or right. something, but it's just weird. The movie's depressing. He's never going anywhere. Where do you even go when you're a, a dancer like that? Anyway, it's, you know, I mean, where do you go from there? There aren't a ton of uh, venues for uh, some guy from, Brooklyn to well, you know where you go. You go to the sequel, Staying Alive. Staying Alive, the worst sequels of all time. You put on a headband. (laughs) That's your answer. Fuck up the legacy of Saturday Night Fever. You make a movie that's so bad, it's renowned as one of the worst sequels ever. Uh, All right, so I'm going. I'm going the disco, the you should be dancing scene as most rewatchable. As most rewatchable. Well, Well, I mean, I I don't. How is it not opening scene of the movie? Oh, opening credits. All right, that's fair. All right. This year, stir up the holiday cheers with the vodka your martini has been waiting for. Grey Goose, vive le martini. You know you deserve only the best, so head to drinkgreygoose.com and code REWATCH for free shipping. Sip responsibly. Imported by Grey Goose Importing Company, Coral Gables, Florida Vodka, 40% alcohol by volume. Distilled from French wheat. All right, next category. What's aged the best? So the soundtrack even though it's been 45 years and we know all these songs intimately. Soundtrack is great. It's still aged spectacularly. Yeah, spectacularly. When those songs come on the radio, I will listen to those songs. And it's funny because, I don't know, I never really thought the Bee Gees were cool. I, I didn't really, even though I knew they did those songs, I didn't associate them with the movie as much as I should have. But um, now, man, I'll listen to any of those songs in, in their entirety when they come on. Any BG song, I'm in. They will never be killed. Staying Alive, How Deep Is Your Love, Night Fever, More Than a Woman. And then on the soundtrack, Drive Talking is on there, which is an awesome mo- song, but Drive that's talking, not in the yeah. movie. You also have More Than a Woman, which they wrote. Yeah, for which the they Tavares, do. Right? They do that. They do two versions of it. One with uh, Yvonne, Yvonne Elliman. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also, If I Can't Have You. By Von Elman. A yeah. fifth of Beethoven. The other version of More Than a Woman performed by Tavares, which is also really good. Yeah. And then you have the You Should Be Dancing. Now, did they do the fifth of Beethoven? Was that Walter? Fifth of Beethoven, something? Walter Murphy. Manhattan Murphy. Skyline performed by David Shire. Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Disco Inferno one. by the Tramps. I mean, it's like yeah. an all-time murderers row. It'll never Tramps be with like two M's, right? In Tramps? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No reason. Another what's aged the best. Tony's Room, which if you look closely, oh, yeah. there's posters of Serpico, Bruce Lee, Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, Rocky, and Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, all the classics. All the classics. Didn't miss there's, one. There's also some seriously bad directing when his dad comes into the room to tell him to come down for dinner, and <laughs> his dad takes a lecherous look at the Farrah Fawcett poster, and they just do a sudden insert shot, a close-up of the nipple. <laughs> It's really that. weird. Like, all right, we get it. He's yeah. like, you don't have to, don't have to see the areola. <laughs> uh, more would say the best. You know, I work on my hair a long time and you hit it. You hit my hair. Hit my hair. You mentioned it earlier. Donna <laughs> Pescal, great performance. The poster for this movie, which Travolta in the white suit, chest out, yeah. one arm pointing up, one arm pointing down. Um, was not the original intention. Apparently, they did a long photo shoot, and he kind of did that at the end as a joke. And they were like, that's it. That's the one. And it became one of the great posters. Um, The Annette and Tony dynamic, which gets dark, 
Yeah. But the whole, like her waiting outside, chewing her gum nervously, and he's coming around the corner and she's just watching him. He's like, why are you standing out here? And she's like, I just like watching you walk down the street. Like there's little moments like that with that yeah. where it's, it's actually yeah, she, a realistic relationship. Like you can- you And he's can a piece of shit. with him too, because he's, she's annoying him. Like she's like, yeah. he's not interested in her and she won't stop. And he's like, and he likes her, but he, she's annoying to him. And yeah. so the way he resolves that is by being kind of a dick and then later being horrible, but um, just being kind of a dick to her, but she yeah. takes it because it's worth it. And it is, it is a very interesting relationship. The dynamic between him and his racist meathead buddies. I, you really believe that those guys have known each other for, 12 years or 15 years or whatever. Yeah. There's like a comfort with all of them. Yeah. Those guys are very real. I mean, even like, yeah. you know, all of it, it just feels, it feels very real. It actually would have been hard to see them. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons none of them really went on to do that much. It would have been hard to see them in other movies because they're so distinct as these meatheads in this movie. Um, another What's Age the Best, mid-90s, mid-70s distressed New York as a movie location. Yeah. Where we had Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Death Wish, The Warriors, Taking a Pelham 123, Dog Day Afternoon, Annie Hall in Manhattan, the good version, Saturday Night Fever and Cruising. And you're pumping all those out in like six years where it's like New York, it's kind of fucked up. And, you know, that yeah, it's very segmented with all these different ethnic groups and class and you know, the downtown's kind of a mess, and they're just filming like all these iconic movies at the same time. Well, it's funny because the difference, and I think that this was represented well in the movie, the difference between Brooklyn and New York City is, it's not, nowadays they're they're one in a way, especially that like northern part of, of Brooklyn. But when you get down to the bottom of Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, yeah. where I grew up, Mill Basin, these are people, we who rarely go into New York city. Like this is, it's not, it, it's, it's, it's as much as much of an adventure as, uh, as it is for people who live in Kansas in a lot of ways, you know, unless right. your dad takes the train there, even the, the train doesn't, you know, go down it like, unless you, um, you just don't, you don't commute to the city from, from that part of Brooklyn in general. And so, it's very different to me from the city of New York and they, you know, everyone calls it the city there. You go into the city and, um, and they're really two entirely different places, I think. Yeah. And it's, I'd say over the last 20 years, they've merged because yeah. so many young people moved to Brooklyn and now it's not as distinct. The movie does an awesome job of showing that separation, right? They do that in the first minute, even before we see Travolta, see the bridge, yeah, you see the water, and it just seems like so far away from New York, and it's him sitting on the on the bench looking at the city. Right. It's something he never really even thought about until she put that thought into his head. Right. That yeah, he's not the brightest must guy. Be something better, you know. One last, what stage the best for me? So, airplane Travolta comes out to, himself. Well, we covered Travolta, <laughs> but yeah, Travolta. Yeah. Um, the airplane parody scene. That they do in the airplane three years later, where they have the whole scene when Robert Hayes and Julie Haggerty they fall in love. They basically do that. Oh yeah, whole Saturday right. Night Fever. Right. It's so ageable. I don't know if that movie's 
if people under 30 even know what that movie is, but for our generation, one of the one of the big comedies. Oh yeah, a great a great movie and still pretty funny if yeah. you if you were to watch it. Um the, for me, Mad Magazine's parody of of Saturday Night Fever. Oh, that's a good too, one too. Something yeah. that is indelibly uh is in my my head. That was I think maybe I probably read the parody of the movie before I saw the movie. Yeah. Any other what's age the best for you? Um we covered all of them. Let's see. I was going to throw in Denny Terrio's Dance Fever show, which I watched <laughs> in the late seventies, which was yeah. like that syndicated that was the eighties or early eighties, whatever yeah. syndicated TV's Dance attempt, Fever, yeah, attempt to uh, to glom on. Um, all right, we're taking a quick break, and then we'll do what's age worse. This episode is supported by State Farm. Think about your first reaction after you have an accident. What do you do? You scream, oh no, or man, oh, why did this happen? On the flip side, let's say you buy a new car or you lease a new car, get in there and it smells great and you're like, man, this is awesome. But just remember, really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, come back. You had one more what's age the best. What is it? When his mother buys all the pork chops and the father who's out of work is upset, he's <laughs> like, as, as long as we have a nickel, this family's going to eat well. And then it's confusing because there's a whole pile of pork chops on the table. And Tony, who was not hungry like five minutes earlier, takes right. a second one. And that's where he gets one pork chop, one. That's where the fighting starts. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's confusing. He changed. The dad is just confusing in general. He just hates everybody. He's just yeah, looking to but, pick and a fight. Very real. And yeah. I do remember watching that when I was a kid and thinking like, oh, okay. It's rude to have more than one pork chop. Mm. <laughs> What's age the best? Uh, what's age the worst? Oh well, I think well, the re relationship with the various women in the in the movie has aged poorly. <laughs> you know the um, just just the uh, I mean the rapes have aged poorly. I had sexual assaults, rapes, racism, homophobia, misogyny. I think yeah, those are the really random homophobia that has nothing to do with anything. You know, there's a couple of like there's that scene where they're walking under the bridge and yeah, they a see the gay guys. guys walking down the street and they just start fucking with them for no reason. It's like, all right, well, what the fuck was that? That's why I think this movie is more self-aware than than maybe maybe I don't we're know. Thinking. I think I don't think. I think that I don't know. I would guess that they saw just no problem with that, really. Like it did, like, well, this is not going to make our characters less likable. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just seemed like, and it probably went on all the time there too. It's yeah. probably something they'd seen and experienced. But right, they're putting that in the movie because it's realistic and it's something that would happen with groups of guys like these guys. Yeah. Another what stage the worst? Nick Cohn in the mid '90s acknowledged that he fabricated most of his article that he wrote about <laughs> this guy who was based on Tony. And well, the reason he did it was because the real life Tony decides to sue for the profits. And Nick Cohn's like, actually, I kind of didn't really have a story. So I compiled all these different traits and I turned them into this guy and he didn't actually exist. Isn't that funny how that's perfectly yeah. okay if you're writing a movie, but if you're you're a journalist, it, is, it isn't. Yeah, he didn't get crushed for it. Um, 
I think the way he handled the article about how he kind of made stuff up was pretty well done, but he made it up. Uh, the sequel, Staying Alive, we mentioned. The Barracuda fight scene, I it could have yeah. been better. I wanted more from a fight scene if you're comparing it to movies like The Warriors and some of the great 70s fight scene movies. These guys go in, they drive a car into somebody's clubhouse, and that should have been like the greatest 90-second fight scene you know, of 1977, it, it's fine. It's like a B minus. I want a little more from it. Yeah, he gets, um, he, at the end, Tony's kind of getting beat up by a girl, one of the girlfriends. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the other and, guy comes in, he's like, Tony, it's me. <laughs> he's like, basically got a concussion. He's fine 10 hours later. Yeah, no um, problem. 10 hours later, his, his face looks great for the, for the dance contest a week later. Karen Lynn Gorney. So she's nine years older than Travolta. Mm-hmm. I would say below average dancer. Below average, yes. Um, um, had, not a great New York accent either. Not an awesome New York accent. Not a great actor. No. And um, found it difficult, according to the research, to keep up with Travolta in the dance scenes because she had some injuries sustained in a motorcycle accident a few years earlier. <laughs> I, I'm so confused why she got cast for this movie that I actually spent like a half hour Googling it because I was like, there had to be a story. Like yeah. the, the director was his daughter or she was having an affair with the producer. There had to be some reason. No, they just put her in and she's way older than Travolta. That's the other thing. And we're going to, when we do casting what ifs, I'm going to give you a couple people they looked at and I just can't believe this is who they ended up with. All due respect to her, I'm sure she's a nice person. She should have been a little older than him. And that's but the least not 32. Of the problems, really. Yeah. But that, yeah, that was weird that she was still like a, she was giving him a speech about how he's going nowhere and he's doing nothing. And she's <laughs> basically a receptionist. <laughs> in, in 32, 32 is hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's tough. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You made the key point. He sees her dancing and he's like, who's that? I got to get her for the contest. And she's like doing rude. It's like watching your daughter, Jane, like in a dance class, like level of, of maybe your daughter's probably better. Imagine breaking two electric boogaloo. If, um, you know, the girl in there is like, she's just, she really can't do like a head spin or anything. <laughs> right. like that. People will be like, no, no, that's not, she's not the one. Let's keep going until we can find one. The movies. And it would be one thing if she was a fantastic actor, you say like, well, you know what they wanted? They really needed a great actor in this spot, and they decided right. to sacrifice. They got Meryl Streep. Part of it, yeah. <laughs> they they couldn't turn her down. She's too good. Or if she was like just incredibly good looking, but yeah, or that, I, yeah. I, I just don't get it. Uh, the PG version you mentioned. Nothing was worse than seeing this movie on TV with all yeah. the edits. It's just like oh, just painful. Um, the kids now they they have no idea how lucky they are that that doesn't really happen anymore. That they they don't have to. You had those weird dubbed in lines when somebody would say motherfucker and it would be like marble sucker or something. Right. You know? Midnight like, Run's the worst one because Midnight Run has like 200 swears in it and they have to get rid of all of them. Uh, yeah, all right. We we don't have to keep going on what's the best or uh, worst. Casting what ifs. The director got fired a month before they started doing the movie. The director was John Avildsen. We do this, we have this in the documentary, but he was the guy who did Rocky. Oh. He just didn't. He just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And Stigwood at one point is just like, got to get this guy out of here. Gets him out, replaces him with John Badham, and this becomes the movie that puts John Badham on the map. Um, here are the actresses considered for the lead part of Stephanie before they cast Karen Lynn Gorney. 
this is on the internet. I'm not positive all of these are true. I think the last three are true. Jessica Lang keeps getting mentioned as she, she got cat. Kathleen Quinlan, who's a really good actress. I could have seen her in there. Oh, yeah. Kathleen Quinlan, yeah. Amy Irving. I don't know if I believe that because she was in Carrie with Travolta. I think, I think she's probably too famous. But then the one that is like, wow, Carrie Fisher apparently um, auditioned. And she wasn't Princess Leia yet because that movie hadn't come out. And you think about it, like I actually think that would have been amazing if she had done that because I think she's a good actress. She would have figured out the dance stuff. She would have been better than Carolyn Gorney. It's all about the accent for me. And so many actors, I think when you are from Brooklyn, you it really jumps out at you. But yeah. I, and that Carolyn Gourney, I was like, there's no way she's from New York. There's just no <laughs> right. way. I mean, it's it's a fake. The, the worst fake accent is the fake New York accent. And, and you know, when, when a, a woman is trying and like hitting the wrong notes as far as like my Aunt Chippy is what a woman from New York sounds like, a woman from Brooklyn. <laughs> Do Aunt Chippy for one second so people could hear Frank, God damn it, Frank, if you don't shut your goddamn mouth, I'm going to put my foot in it. <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, Donna Pescal was from Brooklyn she and became real. an actress, got rid of the accent, but then had to kind of bring it back because she was in this movie. Couldn't get the role because she was considered too pretty by Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the two people that were in helping Stigwood make this movie, the Paramount executives. Um, so she put on weight. She put on like 10 pounds. She wow. auditioned six times and finally got the role because she knew it was going to be a big role for her. Uh, there's some weird music stuff with this. So they didn't have any of the Bee Gees movie, music when they made the movie. They got it after. So all the stuff they're dancing to, they're dancing to like Stevie Wonder and all of these different songs that weren't Bee Gees songs. And somehow it lines up perfectly when you watch it. Really? Um, in the rehearsal scene in the dance studio, they were supposed to use Lowdown by Boz Skaggs. Yeah. Columbia Records would not grant legal clearance, so they had to shoehorn in something else. I can't imagine Bad move. dancing to that song. I know, but tough one for Boz Skaggs. He could end up on the greatest soundtrack of all time. Uh, best That Guy, a.k.a. the Joey Pants Award for the person in the movie who seems like the most That Guy. This movie came out a million years ago, but the guy, Barry Miller, who plays the guy who dies at the end, who gets his girlfriend pregnant, Bobby. who then was also in Fame. Mm -hmm. He played the comedian in Fame. Mm -hmm. I never really knew what that guy's name was. I think he's the winner because you'd see him. He's like, oh, that guy from Saturday Night Fever and Fame. I think that guy won a Tony Award. He was a good actor. Yeah. I never knew his name. I guess you could say his two buddies in the movie are those guys too. I'm going to say the guy from um, the paint store, the customer at the beginning of the movie, whose name I looked up was Robert Costanzo. Oh, that guy. Was, he's a yeah. great, that guy. He was, yeah. He's in everything. He was on yeah, you're Friends. Right. That's he was a good on, one. That yeah. wins. That's a better choice. The Vincent Hanna, give me all you got a word for uh, best overacting. <laughs> well, that's got to go to Bobby, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. I'm the, you didn't call me, Tony. Why didn't you call me? <laughs> <laughs> he dials it up. Really? That's the thing that makes you fall off the bridge? You didn't get that phone call from Tony? He, by the way, he had your car. He had to have returned it, right? right. You see him every day. You see him every day. The Dion Waiters Award for person who's not, so we call it, this is for the best heat check. This is somebody who's not in the movie that much, but when they're in, make a huge impact. Yeah. Our three nominees, Tony's dad. Yes. Fran Drescher is yes. Connie. Uh, that's the first thing that popped into my head. 
or Monty, the 2001 Monty Odyssey the, DJ. <laughs> Monty, the DJ. I was interested in him too. Yeah. And turns out he was like, he, he was a DJ. He was in Sergeant Pepper's movie, I think, as well. Oh. Monty, Monty also dials it up in this movie. He's not afraid to really overact. He was quite clearly a guy who was really a DJ, like a known dance club DJ in New York, right? I mean, he didn't, yes. he didn't seem like he was an actor. Yeah, that that wasn't like finding Martin Sheen to play the DJ. No, but I would say, I think I have to say Fran Drescher made Me too. Bit, like as far as. Me too. You know, yeah. Lights out. Like just. And plus you have, then you have the background of what happens to her and you're like, wow, why didn't she have a bigger career? Like she was fantastic. Yeah. She could have been Princess Leah or any of those big roles in the late seventies. Recasting couch. Um, Carrie, I mean, anyone for Karen Lingorny, but I would, Carrie Fisher, I got excited for, but you could have also talked me into Fran Drescher, just, just making her uh, the lead character. Fran Drescher would have been great. Would have been yeah. great. Although, yeah, I mean, she she was probably too young if they wanted somebody older. Um, yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, what about like, uh, I don't know how old she was at this time, but what about like Cher? Oh, interesting. You know, I was just trying to think of somebody that's got some. Uh, then they would have had those fake Hollywood stories about how they New fell in York. love during the filming. Yeah, right. It's, it's heated Hollywood. up with John Travolta and Cher. <laughs> Sunny, furious. <laughs> uh, Half Fast Internet Research filmed entirely on location in Brooklyn. 2001 Odyssey Disco no longer exists, was demolished. During the filming, we have this in the documentary. The production was harassed by local gangs, mafia. There was fire bombings. They had to like put out fake call sheets so the people would show up with protesters or gangs so just that they could film scenes without people knowing. And it was a debacle. That like, still and, goes on, by the way. That that has yeah. not... Uh, I've experienced a little bit of that myself. You have to make sure certain unions are paid to work even if there's nothing for them to do. Right. So when they shot the first bridge scene, the director, John Badham, kept it a secret from Donna Pescow when the guys fell off the bridge. So oh. her reaction is like, holy shit, that he just fell off the bridge. And uh, in that next line of you fuckers, she was actually mad when she found out that they <laughs> were dead. So that was all real. Um, when Tony's dad hits Travolta in the head, one of the times he actually gets mad and he ad-libs the line that we like was not scripted when he's oh. like, you know how long it takes to work on my hair? That was he that actually, rip. he was mad at the actor. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So they left it in. True or false. This was the first mainstream Hollywood movie in which the term blowjob was used. Oh, well, I have to assume it's true or else it it's is a true. weird thing to make up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> true. It never been said in a movie before. Blowjob. Never. Yeah. Never. Um, You're not including pornos, I assume. Well, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Travolta was dating the mom from Made Is Enough in real life, Diana Highland, who died of cancer. Remember that? She was in like the first couple episodes then yeah. replaced by Betty Buckley. By what Betty a show, Buckley. by the way. Yeah. It is enough. Incredible. Oh, love um, that show. Love she was that. the one who convinced him to make the movie and then she died as they were filming it. So he was like upset during it. Uh, this was one of the first films to utilize a Steadicam. John Travolta's sister, Anne, is the pizza lady and his mother is the woman who gets the... He gets the paint for, so he's got two family members. Yeah, Anne Travolta. Yeah, she was in some things. She was in like Laverne and Shirley or something yep. as well. Right? Oh, yeah. Joni Loves Chachi. 
Joni Loves Chachi. That's uh, right. Was that Ellen Travolta? Yeah. Ellen Travolta. Ellen Travolta was Joni Loves Chachi. Right. So I don't want to step on the documentary, but Stigwood basically goes to France to convince the Bee Gees to use these songs for the movie and hoards them. Watch the documentary because it's, I'm talking to the listeners. Quick Stigwood, question. Stigwood puts this jigsaw puzzle together, the movie with these songs, holds the songs, doesn't release them, waits, 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 and figures out how to just maximize everything. Did they write the songs for the movie or they were pre-existing no. songs? How did he know about the songs? He said, so they declined an offer to read the script, but he told them about the movie and they had several song titles in mind, Staying Alive, Night Fever, How Deep Is Your Love? And uh, and that's how it got going. But as I said, when they were filming the scenes, it was Stevie Wonder and Boz Skaggs was what he was dancing. I don't understand the Boz Skaggs thing. I don't That's either. like Yacht Rock. Um, it's a little jazzy, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Boom, boom, yeah. Here's what yeah. Barry Gibbs said. Um, he gave them all those demos. The guys went nuts. And Barry Gibbs said, they flipped out. They said, these will be great. We still had no concept of the movie some kind of rough script they'd brought. You got to remember, we were fairly dead in the water at this point. 1975, BG Sound was tired. We needed something new. We had a hit record in three years. We felt like, oh, geez, this is it. We had to find something. This movie revives their career. They, it's covered in the HBO documentary about them, but um, them and Travolta just take off. I was wondering about that. What, at what point were they uh, in their career arc when this movie came out? They were and dead in the water. That's interesting. Yeah. So a couple of Paramount suits were uncomfortable by the way Travolta was so lovingly photographed in the bedroom mirror scene and asked for more Farrah Fawcett footage, which is why we ended up with the close-up of the poster and then the nipple. Oh, wow. So that's your answer. They were like, ah, a little homoerotic. Really? So they, so they, they brought in Farrah. Uh, Carolyn Gordy's take on why she, her career never took off after this movie. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. She was Quote, terrible in it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Quote, people didn't know what to do with Stephanie Mangano. People thought that I was the person in the movie and I became that instead of someone who was stable and whole and had some sense of herself. She said casting meetings went nowhere. At one point, she nixed an offer to star in a Saturday Night Fever TV series. She headed to England in 1979 and made an album that nobody bought and returned to New York and was back. Did you know she's in the Clifford the Big Red Dog movie right? that's out yeah, right she's, now? She's had like a, in her 60s and 70s, this rejuvenation as like a character. <laughs> My kids went to go see that with their cousins and uh, they came home and, uh, and and they loved the Clifford movie. And I said... Uh, He's, he's my son Billy's like he's he was so big. I said, did he kill anybody? <laughs> my wife's like, what's wrong? <laughs> but a dog of that size would definitely kill a yeah. lot of people. Step on one kid or eat them. Yeah. Um. All right. One more break, and then we're gonna do Apex Mountain. All right. Coming back. Do you understand the concept of Apex Mountain? This is when it's a person, it's a thing, whatever. It is at the peak of its powers. Mm-hmm. It has never had more juice career-wise. Mm -hmm. It has never been more popular, famous. It has just never had more. Uh. So Travolta, I would actually say Greece was probably his apex mountain because Greece follows Saturday Night Greece Fever. Followed this, yeah. After Greece, it's like this guy can do anything he wants. He could be like, I, I have this idea of a movie. If I take a shit for ninety minutes, and they would be like, "Cool, here's money." So I think I think it's Greece for him, right? 
I think so. It might be like the day. It might be like like one week after Greece opened, like because of the, just the combination of those yeah. two two movies, especially like for us. I, mean, I probably have seen Greece. I don't know, eighty five times. Well, that's the thing. Greece and Saturday Night Fever as like a soundtrack rewatchable. He's in two of them back to back. He filmed them right after each other. Two. The, so. the only thing that only thing that. You knock a couple points off for Greece because it was an existing musical. True, uh, but um, yeah. To I mean, to me, he's Danny Zuko. You know that was you know there is yeah. no other Danny Zuko. I, I'm I know Adrian Zemed um, tried, but uh, you know yeah, went as well as it did for Bo, played by yeah. Stephen Shortridge. I, I looked that. Imagine up that though. Imagine yeah. if he had someone of the caliber of an Olivia Newton John. In Saturday Night Fever, exactly. Great point. Because she's, she's like, I mean, she's the equivalent of him, really. I mean, she is monster. She just, shows up in the leather jacket at the end, and it just was like, the oh my god, looking woman in the world. You know, it was like the most desirable person. I remember seeing that movie, and my mother, my mother was like, oh, what a great lesson. Um, if you want to get the guy, be a slut. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of fun I had growing up. <laughs> uh, uh, Stigwood also produced Grease we should mention one of the ah. reasons he ends up at, in a yacht at the end of our documentary Karen Lynn Gorney Apex Mountain I'm going to say yes considering she didn't act for 14 years she afterwards more of a never hill, got like, better yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apex Hill uh, how about this Old Brooklyn as a pop culture location would you go with this would you go with Welcome Back Cotter or would you go with the Warriors when they have to fight the orphans oh, in 1979? Yeah. Which which one of the three? Well, I, I'm going to have to go with Welcome Back, Cotter, really, because yeah. it was more The general. credits. Yeah. Yeah, the credits. I agree with you. How about the Brooklyn Bridge? Has the Brooklyn Bridge ever been used more successfully in a movie than this? Multiple scenes. We have a depth. People staring out at it. Woody Allen, I think, would be the only competitor in that category, right? All right. We'll call it a tie. Well, Woody Allen's... Making his movies right at the same time as this, so I would say this is Apex Mountain for for the Brooklyn oh, Bridge. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, you mean nineteen seventy seven? Yes. Yeah. Disco definitely. Now what's funny is Disco was kind of dying when this movie came out, and I they were actually that, worried. Actually. Yeah, they were worried that they were too late that they missed it, and then it just revived it, and then got criticized for basically whitewashing Disco because you know the the story of Disco is so much more complicated than just this movie, but um. But yeah, I think Disco peaks right around here. John Badham, definitely. How about dysfunctional Italian family dinners? Apex Mountain? <laughs> Have they ever been captured never better? never go away. They never go away. <laughs> it's a permanent always, apex. There's always a good one somewhere. I mean, every mafia movie's got one. Um, uh, mm. The scene in... Um, That's true. The Goodfellas. Maybe Goodfellas? Goodfellas, where they visit his mother and she, yeah. after, the, after they chop a guy up. And <laughs> he looks at, he's looking at the painting and he's like, yeah. uh, it reminds me of somebody. It, you know, <laughs> our friend, our friend. Um, I would say all the guys in this movie was definitely Apex Mountain. No question. Yeah. Barry Miller, Paul Pape, and Joseph Kelly. Um, Picky Nits, you had the big one. I wanted more from the dance contest. I still... I still enjoy watching it, but I think I enjoy watching it because it makes me mad because I've seen this movie enough times where you just go, man, why did this should have been the best scene in the movie? And it should, they, yeah. they should have been awesome. And then maybe you have the Puerto Rican couple is even better than them. And it's just like this incredible face off. And instead, 
I, it just, it doesn't they get there. They screwed up the easy part. Yeah. That was the easy part. And they screwed, you know, Travolta can dance for sure. I mean, we saw that. And there's a lot of dancing in this movie. But um, yeah, there's you know, like, you know, there's no Rocky moment. No. Uh, and then, you know, they fight the Barracudas. There's no revenge. That just kind of goes away. Yeah, that just goes away. They <laughs> they attack the wrong, potentially the wrong guys. <laughs> and then, so their friend falls to his death. They should have lost that fight. That would have been a funnier scene. They <laughs> crashed through the thing. They got the shit beat out of them. Right. Like they had to like, you know, the cops came. The guys had to scurry. They got taken to the hospital too. And then the guy, they find out that maybe it wasn't the right guys. <laughs> <laughs> right winning and the fight it. was was the mistake there so their friend falls to his death the yes. cops show up and they're yeah. like here's what happened they tell him the cops are like okay good like nobody has to go back to the station right now and then yeah, tony just goes on the subway for six hours it's like what <laughs> don't they have more questions like how did this guy fall did you push him are you a suspect yeah there seems like there would have been more questions and and even like tony's reaction is Sometimes you can kill yourself without killing yourself or whatever he said. <laughs> and the cop's like, good, cop's noted. Like, yeah. All right, you guys are free True. to go. <laughs> and then uh, my last one is just, I don't know if $500 is too much for the dance contest or not, not enough. enough. It's not enough. It, well, what is $500 okay, now? Is that like $5,000 now? I don't think it's even that much, but think of it this way. The, and by the way, you split it, it's $250 a piece. So it's really not $500. But the $4 raise was like a joke. It was like, you know, like his father yeah. was laughing at him for the $4 raise, which means he had to be making $100 a week, right? I mean. So you think this should have been like a $1,500 price? Yeah, I would have made it more. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. Next category. Maybe a trip to Hawaii, and that's how the movie ends. Like they're all in Hawaii. <laughs> And um, <laughs> committing you know, crimes. Yeah, at a luau. <laughs> could this be remade as a 10 episode Netflix show? 100%. Uh, 100%. It could. I hope that doesn't happen, but you could. Would you set it in 1977 or would you do the 2021 version? Well, that's the thing is that, yeah, you couldn't. I don't know that you could set it in 1977 because it would seem like a costume party or something. It wouldn't seem right. like. What you know, the feeling that and then was like, this is what's happening now, right? This is like, this is the cool stuff. And then if you if you said it in the past, it would take on a different. Um, I'm gonna say no. Deal. I think we're good with spending two hours with these people. I don't know if I'd want to spend ten to twelve. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want like the Annette episode where we find out like she doesn't get along with her mom. And the truth is, people have remade this movie in different ways with different kind of dancing yes. or different music or even like sometimes with stand-up comics you know like you got nowhere you got nothing you're gonna live this life this shitty life that your parents lived and you're never going anywhere but you go on stage for that one hour or whatever yeah. a night and you get that feeling and then eventually you you rise above that <laughs> of course in this case he doesn't <laughs> yeah it's funny like even movies like All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, it's basically the same formula, right? You could end up in the coal mines or you might have a chance to get out of here. Yeah. I think for a Tony, it's like, all right, where am I getting out of? What, what, I, I have no life skills. What, I, I'm probably never leaving this place, right? So the one good thing he has was at least he finally has a functional relationship with the opposite sex. That's That's his win. Yeah. Yeah, best case scenario for him, he's teaching at that dance studio with that guy. You right. Know? 
Or maybe him and the DJ, maybe they spin off, form their own dance club named after Tony. Tony gets a cut. Uh, probably an answer, but questions. Are you glad that the sequel Staying Alive happened or do you wish it never happened? Because I'm in the camp of as horrible as it is, I'm glad it exists. I think the first five minutes of it are among the five funniest moments, minutes of the yeah, uh, entire 80s. It's Frank so, Stallone. It's so comical. It, it, it's so outlandishly silly. I am glad. And I feel also like it's just so different from Saturday Night Fever that it didn't ruin it in the same way most sequels would. I mean, yeah. they're almost not even the same characters. I like when he bumps into Stallone as they're walking in the street because they're redoing the opening credits and he bumps into Stallone who's got this beard and it's just like this gleaming close-up of how handsome Stallone is because he <laughs> he's directing the movie. He couldn't resist putting himself in it. Uh, whatever happened to Donna Pescow as why didn't she become a bigger thing as an actress? She's really good in this movie. Yeah. And then she does Angie, which they really put real chips behind and they had Robert Hayes who's an airplane and it's, it felt like it was becoming, it just kind of didn't happen. And she, she just never had her one, mo one movie or TV show, but eventually landed on the Sopranos in a recurring role as one of the, uh, mob webs. Well, you remember? she seems, she's kind of a character actor. Yeah. She I became mean. a character actress, yeah. but I think there was a moment where maybe something else could happen. Any other unanswerable questions for you? Um, no one wears a seatbelt ever in this movie, which is disturbing. <laughs> it's jarring. I love those cars back then with the three seats in the front, which are just yeah. seems so illegal now. That guy in the middle is just dying if you hit anything going over we had one 10 of miles an hour. Um, and of course, we didn't wear seatbelts, and my dad hit the brake, and I went right through the windshield with my head. It was, oh, my God. It was us. We had a, and then, of course, we didn't get it fixed for uh, God only knows how long. It, it had a big spider crack courtesy of my noggin in one of those cars. Uh, what would you, what piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? It has to be the suit. So they made three suits, mm -hmm. two disappeared right after the film and they kept one. Travolta wrote something in it and that's the one Gene Siskel bought. That's the one he sold. And nobody knows where it is now. Somebody has it. It's an undisclosed person. Right. The but it might pop I'm out at of, some point. The objects I'm thinking of are, um, um, his, the car? Uh, uh, yeah, well, the car's cool. Like the paint can would be a cool thing to have. Ooh. The can of yeah. paint that he was carrying for that to that woman. Um, the um the, the his hairbrush might be kind of cool from the uh you know hairbrushing scene. Uh I mean, obviously the suit is, is that white suit is is the thing. I mean, that's a like disco ball Superman from the 2001. Right. That's yeah. the disco ball would be cool, I think. But yeah, the suit is like you're right. That's like Superman. That's like having Luke Skywalker. Maybe some of those rubbers that um, that uh, Annette had in her hand that she tried. <laughs> Rich, movie used rubbers. That they took that long, over, overly long close up of those rubbers. Like yeah, it's like it was we like get a, it. Like eight seconds. Like yeah, all right, they're rubbers. We we all know what the fuck they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That there's some 1977 kind of primitive movie moments in this where now you would just that would. They would linger on that for what a split second. Get yeah, out of there, right? For sure. Yeah. Uh, who on the movie is the last question when we do the rewatchables? This is about as easy as it gets. Oh, Travolta, yeah, of course, is it's John Travolta. I mean, Travolta no wins. About it. Going away. And the Bee Gees. You're right, because you could argue the Bee Gees 
You could make a Bee Gees one the movie case. You could also make a Robert Stigwood one the movie case because over the course of like five years, he makes basically a billion dollars from all these properties. Yeah, Yeah, he got everything. But I think it's Travolta because... Yeah, because he's got a 747 now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I wonder, because I think he would have been a big star anyway, but I still feel like you need the giant movie. I think it probably would have been Grease. So I don't necessarily, he didn't need this movie for it to happen, but this movie obviously That movie was as if it was written for him. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can't even imagine anybody else playing that part. Well, I forgot to mention that in the What's Age the Worst, because, and this is just the case of just, we know who John Travolta is now. Going from Barbarino to this part, I, I think was surprising in a good way for a lot of people when they saw this movie where they just yeah. knew him as this goofy TV actor. And it's like, wow, this guy's actually a real actor. It was a big advantage a way, for him. I mean, they could have, could just as easily have named him Vinnie Barbarino in this movie <laughs> because it was like, okay, he was in high school and he's at goofball yeah. in high school. And now here he is. I now mean, he's learned how to dance. Yeah. I mean, the only difference is um, he, um, he hung around with guys from other races in Welcome Back, Cotter. I mean, that's good point. Really, the only difference. Good point. Yeah, Travolta's the winner. Do you have a John Travolta story for us before you go, or no? Anything you could tell us? Yeah, I got a lot of. Okay, here's one for you. So you know um, that lunchbox you have behind you um, yep. there. Hold that up for you for a second. I, I know. I forgot I had this. Mostly yeah. audio. Yeah, I have the. Show the other side too. I have the original artwork for both on both sides of that lunchbox. What? How? I bought one and my wife bought me the other. And John Travolta was on our show after the Oscars one night. And I gave him the other piece of artwork. I gifted it to him. It was his first time on the show. And what? I felt that he should have it. My How do I was, not know this story? I've known you for 19 very years. Mad at me. I'm very mad. Where did you find the original artwork? Like eBay? Online. I found it on like eBay or something. And I, I paid like 1200 bucks for it or something. Oh my God. That was a steal. It's probably worth oh, like $100,000 now. I, I don't know if it is. Don't tell my wife if it is. But then she bought the other side for, I don't know, not that much, maybe like a couple grand or something. It was, uh, and it is the original artwork. It's a painting and it's, it's pretty great. I actually have it in my office. I wanted to buy, both of us love good times about as much as any show that's ever happened. I tried to buy this too. I looked for the painting for a while and it's like that Ernie Barnes paintings, they don't fuck yeah. around. Those I've are seen like it. Picassos. I've seen it in person. <laughs> the original one? The original. You know who owns it? Who? Oh, I'm going to make you guess. 20 questions? Go ahead. Is it an actor? Yes. Is it an actor that's older than us? Yes. Is it a black actor? Yes. Is it Denzel Washington? No. Is it a comedian actor? Yes. Was it a comedian actor who's been on a show that existed in the 1970s? Yes. Oh, he, man. I, I, should, I should say he was on a show that existed in the 1970s, but he was not on it in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to just tell us who it is. Who no, is it? No, come on. You have to guess it. You're going to kick yourself. You're not 1970s gonna... going into the 1980s. It was a show that existed in the 70s? Yeah. Still on the air. It's still on the air? Yep. Saturday Night Live, you mean? Yep. Oh, Eddie Murphy has it? Yes, he does. What? Yeah. He owns it. <laughs> That's unbelievable. 
I know. I tried to buy it and uh, I tried to find it and I was told that Eddie Murphy owns it. Unbelievable. I'm yeah. s- I'm speechless. I saw it at his house. So where did he put it? Like in the living room? It's hanging in like there's like a entertaining room and and there it is. Wow. That I mean that's one of the great paintings. They have like some prints for it. He it's made like great, Ernie Barnes sign like 50 prints or 100 prints. It's one of the great TV show paintings of all time. <laughs> I think it's the best opening credits to a TV show Good I think times. for of a comedy I think ever. Oh, what about what's happening where they're all like walking down the street and like really like <laughs> fucking around. That's good too, but this is like I don't know, you got the song yeah. And how it ends with the painting. I don't know. I, I'm still partial to good times. Yeah. Pretty good. good. Wow, an amazing story. This was fun. Did you have a good time on the rewatchables? I did. I enjoyed it. Yes. I, All right, it, good. It was weird to watch that movie again. It really was. Well, the, you're going to come back because you, me, and Sal are going to do a movie together okay, at good. some point. We'll do right. something fun. But uh, right. Oh, wait. Plug, uh, plug your show. Oh, since we're talking about good times, you know, last time around we did um, we did good times and all in the family live on ABC. Yeah, we revived it and on Tuesday. You won an night, Emmy. You should mention there was some Emmys, some Emmys handed out. We won Emmys for each one of these. Uh, we did all in the family and the Jeffersons, and then all in the family and good times. And this time on Tuesday, December seventh, eight p.m. live on ABC. We are doing Different Strokes, starring Damon Wayans as Willis and starring Kevin Hart as Arnold and John Lithgow as Mr. Drummond and Dowd wow. as, as Mrs. Garrett. And then we are doing Facts of Life with Jennifer Aniston as Blair, Catherine Hahn is Joe, Tootie is Gabrielle Union, um, Allison Tolman is playing Natalie, and, and we have a few um, pretty excellent surprise uh Ooh. appearances as well in both shows in fact i can't wait december 7th there you go all right thanks jimmy good to see you thanks bill that's it for the rewatchables it's produced as always by craig horlbeck thanks to jimmy kimmel we will see you on this feed next week might be a tony scott film just might might bet on tony scott for a week from now see you then.